He has made a career of managing natural disasters and served as the FEMA administrator during the Obama administration. But this week's guest has been out of the federal government over a year, so we have some catching up to do with longtime Weather Geek's friend Craig Fugate. We'll look at back at some of the biggest events of his career, cover his view of FEMA today, and discuss how things are changing in the world and why that may mean more work for emergency managers. We'll also talk with Laura Lightbody, Project Director of the Pew's Flood Prepared Communities Program. Thank you both for joining us. First, I want to talk to Craig Fugate. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's good to be back. Yeah, it is. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and this is the Weather Geeks podcast. And the reason he says it's good to be back is I think Craig Fugate, uh, former administrator of FEMA, was one of our most popular and frequent guests on the TV version of Weather Geeks. So it's really an honor to have you here in this new iteration of the program. So what have you been up to? Uh, a lot of stuff I was doing, like when I was at FEMA, except I'm not having to run an agency. So I can really focus on my passion, which is how do we do a better job of both preparing for disasters, but more importantly, how can we start reducing their impacts? And so you know, you're a big person about language, and I love writing your articles about science. So I want to throw something out there about we need to cop, quit calling them natural disasters. Okay, that, I, I knew that's something that you're really passionate about. Yeah. So let, let's go there. So well, why do you say that? Because... I think what happens when we call things natural disasters, there's this sense that there's nothing we can do about it. It's just acts of God, it's going to happen. I like to take a step back and go, what we're really talking about are natural hazards. And it's how we build and live in this environment uh, that causes the disasters. Uh, and I think we need to take more ownership of that. And I think it's, it, it, is, it, it may be just words to some people, but you've taught me words are important. That when we call them natural disasters, we, we tend not to hold local officials, uh, local builders, home buyers accountable for how and where they built. Right. And we know that's a major factor in, in risk like floods. So I like to call them natural hazards. And then disasters are the consequences. And, you know, we have a lot of types of disasters. Some of them are caused by natural phenomenon. Some of them are man-made events. Right. Some are technological. Uh, but the hazard itself, particularly natural hazards, and this has a lot to do with how and where we built. So we do have some responsibility there. Now, using the lens of perhaps some recent events here in 2018, give us an example of what you really mean by that, whether it is with Harvey, Maria, the recent Ellicott City floods. Kind of walk us through the difference in what you're talking about between a disaster and a hazard and what it means. Well, let's take Houston. In the last 15 years, uh, they've had extreme rainfall events that have exceeded uh, the system design. Uh, but this wasn't a mystery. There's been numerous articles written about Houston that was built around bayous. It's a flood-prone area. Uh, and that the flooding shouldn't really have been a surprise. And I think there was, you know, again, a lot of information out front that there was a flood problem there well before Harvey hit. Right. So there, you really can't say that, you know, though Harvey was the largest, you know, set records in rainfall, that other events couldn't have happened and it was built by design. We designed it. We didn't intentionally build it to flood, but we built it in such a way that it was very vulnerable to flood. Sure, sure. And so that's really, I think, what we want to start looking at. This isn't about you can't build, you can't develop, but it's really about using the appropriate building codes, land use zoning, elevation, uh, things that we can reduce the impacts of disasters so that when these naturally occurring phenomena occur, we're not seeing people, 
you know, losing their homes, losing their livelihood, losing their lives because we built in a way that made us more vulnerable. Now, I mean, you know, we talked with Craig Fugate, former FEMA administrator, and candidly, I think one of the best that has ever done that job, uh, at least in my sort of relatively short time on the planet. Uh, we're talking about this notion of natural disaster. Now, you're you're sort of in, in consulting now and sort of doing these various things. Tell us a little bit about how this is resonating as you're going around the country and perhaps around the world. Well, one of the groups I get to work with, and, and Laura's here with us today, was the Pew Trust. Yeah. And, you know, people think of the Pew Trust either because they see them uh, sponsoring public television or that they hear about their uh, polling. Uh, but the Pew has actually been working on a lot of policy issues, everything from the opioid crisis to marine sanctuaries. And starting several years ago, they began looking at floods. Uh, and the reason they started looking at floods was it happens in all 50 states. Uh, it's getting worse. It's causing uh, tremendous impacts and losses on the federal side. Uh, most recently, $16 billion had to be put into the funds to pay down the debt. There are over $20 billion in debt in the National Flood Insurance Program. And there didn't seem to be a good space to have policy input. There, it had gotten so uh, polarized, uh, people either trying to reduce the program uh, and say we shouldn't be subsidizing risk, and other people saying, hey, we got all these folks that live here. Uh, what will they do if we don't have the program? And so it, it was really about this opportunity to partner with somebody to talk about policy. Right. And not forgetting there's families at the other end of this policy. So don't take the typical, we're going to solve everything in Washington. Uh, and that's why I'm in Atlanta today. Uh, we came out here to see what the city of Atlanta has been doing, uh, some innovative ways to take areas that were prone to flooding and turn them into environmental spaces that not only help minimize or prevent flooding, but actually increase the value of the community by adding more park space and green spaces. And we're taking this and going back to Congress and, and suggesting that, you know, we're not going to solve the problem overnight. Right. But can we tar start taking some incremental steps and giving better tools to communities to build for their risk versus only time we seem to be willing to fund something is after the big floods occur. Now, now Craig, I want to talk to you about flooding because you know, you've dealt in your career with all, all, all measures of hazards and, and disasters. What is your perception, at least, of how the public and policymakers perceive flooding as opposed to, say, hurricanes and tornadoes? I, I, I've often argued that Flooding, and if you, if you look at National Weather Service statistics, heat and flooding really are the most sort of treacherous weather-related events in a given year in terms of lives, loss, and property. But it seems that people just don't grasp flooding in the same way that we deal with a hurricane. I mean, we were watching the other day the flooding in, in Maryland and just, you know, a wall of water going through downtown. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Uh, but that's not an isolated case. Right. And... As we've seen, as we've urbanized areas that had flood risk, as we get heavier rainfall events, they're becoming more severe. Why did, wait, now, let's let's stop right there, and then I'll let you finish your thought. So you are of the firm understanding that, that floods are going to be increasing for various reasons related to climate, infrastructure, and others. Well, that's what some of the science is actually pointing to. The two signals that we seem to have the greatest uh, collective agreement on that we see is extreme rainfall events and droughts. Both are getting worse. Uh, so California is going through boom-bust of flood events to extreme drought and wildfires. And so as we have continued to urbanize areas that had flood-prone tendencies, 
And now we're seeing these increasing record-setting rainfall events in that area. It's just getting worse. I mean, I was out in Colorado in 2013 on the Front Range. And again, this wasn't tropical moisture, but it was a, a front dumped a lot of rain in an area that's not used to it. And we had some of the worst flooding. And, and you hear this enough, you start to wonder. You know, I, I, I would go in after these and I'd hear from people, you know, I've lived here all my life. It's never been this bad. Yes. But I wasn't hearing that once every couple of years. I was hearing that every couple of months. Wow. Wow. So people are paying attention, at least locally. They're paying attention. Their Congress is paying attention right. because the cost and disasters, one of the big components of floods, like you said, of all of the things that are causing loss of life, it's heat waves and flood. You know, some of the research from National Hurricane Center says, you know, all, everybody always focuses on wind, but the big killer in hurricanes is water. Inland freshwater flooding and surge. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah the, the, I think the, the wind is often most telegenic, but the, the water is very dangerous, and that's a great point. Um, so you, it sounds like you are very much, and I, I'm not surprised at this, just knowing, knowing a little bit about you and your personnel, so you're very much engaged still uh, post-FEMA uh, administrator. Yeah, people said, so what are you going to do when you retire? I said, well, I didn't retire. <laughs> I'm an emergency manager. This is what I do. This is who I am. I now have new avenues, yeah. and I have new partners to well, work with. Do you, there are only going to be a handful of people in life that are going to be the FEMA administrator. So talk about, I mean, that's certainly an honor, and it's a role that I know you cherished in, as a part of your career, but talk about the just fundamental differences in being the nation's top emergency manager, now being an emergency manager in a different sort of role. What what does that, is there, are there things that you can do and say that are different? I would probably say it's similar to your job as, okay. a, as a, a professor. Okay. If you, if you didn't have the students, you didn't have to work with them, and you could do nothing but research. Right. You could follow the things that you're most passionate about. Uh, it's not that you don't like your students, you don't like your job, but that's the way I look at it. When I was at FEMA, there was a lot of things I was responsible for. I couldn't always spend all my time on the things I was most passionate about, which was how do we do a better job preparing for disasters, but more importantly, how do we do a better job of reducing disasters? And now that I'm out, that's really what I get the opportunity to do. Right. I can pick and focus on those things that I think, um, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time you know, figuring out how to respond faster and better to disasters. Now that I'm not doing that, I can spend more time thinking about well, why do we have to respond so fast and so big? Why can't we reduce this by thinking about how we build our communities? You know, the terminology resilience has come about, but it's really about how do we build appropriate for our risk in a way that protects our families and our businesses and not have to rely upon disaster funds to bail out communities because of bad decisions we've made. Right. And you mentioned this term resiliency. In fact, we're sitting here in Atlanta, which is one of the 100 resilient cities uh, that was designated a couple of years ago. Uh, I've been in various circles and meetings where some people push back on that word. They say it's buzzwordy. Um, what are your thoughts on resiliency and the framework of natural hazards today? I agree it's a buzzwordy thing, uh, but I think it also helps us to find something that goes beyond just talking about responding to disasters. Uh, the first thing about being resilient is it doesn't mean you don't have disasters, but it means they're not as impactful as they are, that you're able to get back to business quicker, that you take in, into consideration your risk, and you're never going to prevent all the impacts. But you've done a lot of the work to make them less impactful, and they, they don't affect the bottom line of the community. They don't affect, you know, the housing. You know, there'll be some impacts, but it doesn't 
take out the community. The community is able to essentially manage their response and recovery, maybe with some federal assistance. Right. Uh, which, if you look at the last year's hurricane season, one of the challenges Brock had is you got three uh, huge hurricane impacts from Harvey to Irma to Maria in the U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico. And, you know, FEMA just wasn't built to respond to three hurricanes back to back. Um, the more that communities and states have done work to build resilience allows FEMA to then focus on those areas that are hard hit. Um, you know, that was I don't think that was an anomaly last year. No. Uh, you know, we got hit by four hurricanes in 2004 in Florida, and everybody thought that was an anomaly. Right. Uh, I don't think it's an anomaly. I and, think that's oh, the reality. Yeah, and oh, by the way, uh, days before we're taping this, we just had a tropical depression in Michigan. That's not yeah. normal. <laughs> oh, well, you were coming. I, I thought it was very interesting because I'm in Gainesville, so I'm watching Alberta pass me as a tr- subtropical storm, and it now looks better organized over land than it did over the it, Gulf of it Mexico. Did. Yeah, we've never had a storm that far, far north in May. So, yeah, so I think it kind of resonates with your point that 2017 probably was an anomaly and something we need to deal with. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with the former administrator of FEMA, Craig Fugate. Uh, A little bit later on, we're going to be joined by Laura Lightbody as well from Pew. But I want to kind of, for the next few minutes, talk a a little bit more with Craig. What is your perspective on, you mentioned Brock Long earlier, and we've we've talked to him on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, You mentioned some of the challenges of him walking in the door and having to deal with three hurricanes. And, you know, agencies just aren't necessarily designed to deal with that type of sort of multiple back-to-back threats. So how's he doing? What do you think? Well, I've talked to Brock. I've I've known Brock for a long time. We kind of like paralleled in the business. He was the uh, hurricane uh, manager for FEMA Region 4 when I was a state. He was uh, one of my counterparts, the state director in Alabama when I was state director in Florida. And, um, you know, when people said, what do you think about Brock Lone when he got nominated? I said, Brock Lone's an emergency manager. He gets this. Um, but like with anybody walking into the job, uh, nobody expects that to be your first year, but nobody should go in there expecting that couldn't happen. Sure, absolutely. And so I think, you know, everything, everybody always comes back and they want to do the uh, Monday morning quarterback. I'm like, unless you're in the meetings and in the rooms when decisions are made, it's hard to comment. Right. Uh, so I think, you know, Brock's got a good message. It's not much different than what I used to say. It's like, folks, in a big disaster, don't expect somebody to come from outside to take care of you. You need to be taking care of yourself and your family, and you need to be checking on your neighbors. We know that's the fastest response. And the more we can get local and state governments to build capabilities, both to respond to their disasters but support their neighbors through mutual aid, the more we get communities to embrace this idea that we need to build appropriate for our hazards, the easier it gets to be as a nation to be able to respond to what has been a very high tempo of operations. Right. And this isn't about making the federal government job easier. It's about the recognition that disasters are not just one level of government's responsibility. And I think that's probably the one message that people really need to hear from Brock is it's a team effort. If local and state governments aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing to get ready for disasters and being prepared, FEMA can't fill all those gaps. Right. FEMA wasn't built that way. FEMA requires strong partners at the state and local level to support but not replace. Now, one question I have, and this is irrespective of who the FEMA administrator, administrator is, who the president is, if – You've been as, at the head of FEMA. If you had a magic wand, are there ways that FEMA should be changed, structured to really do what it is functioned to do or a task to do? Are, is there, are there a couple of things now that you're on the outside looking in and say, man, if I could really restructure FEMA or just the way things work, 
are there any things that come to mind? Well, you know, when I was in FEMA, I, I, I looked at, um, you know, people said, what laws do we need to change? What do you need to do differently? And I said, you know, it's not so much to what the law, Congress gave us a lot of authority and a lot of flexibility. It's overcoming a mindset that FEMA responds to a lot of smaller events. It's 90% of our business. And it's almost this mindset that we're going to scale up for big disasters. And I, I, I really fought that and said, look, you got to build for big disasters and scale down. Mm, okay. And I think that's, again, one of the challenges that you have in any big organization is you tend to optimize for what you do most of the time and then hope it will scale up. Uh, it didn't work in Hugo, didn't work in Andrew, didn't work in Katrina. It certainly hasn't worked the last couple of years. Um, and so I think that's the thing that, uh, as people like Brock comes in as an emergency manager, he gets, he knows what to do, is it isn't the individuals. The individuals are trying everything they can to solve problems. It's this tendency for bureaucracies to solve for themselves and simplify their programs, which make them so complex uh, to the people using them. So if I could do one thing at FEMA, I'm like, I would try to, and this is what we try to do, but it's, it's hard to do. I'd reorient my programs around the people I serve not what's easy on the other side to administer. We sometimes are more fearful of making mistakes, i.g., the inspector general finding fault, you being accused of fraud and waste and not accountable. So we tend to build all these controls and to minimize that. Right. I would rather see a, a Congress say, hey, look, FEMA, we know in disasters there's not going to be precision. You're going to have to take risk. We'd rather build the programs for speed around the people we serve. We'll make mistakes and we'll make errors. But we better be fast and efficient in meeting the needs of the people we serve uh, because the bottom line is they're paying the taxes. They're, they, they pay our salaries. We are there to serve them. But bureaucracies tend to solve for themselves. Right. It's not that they're bad people, but it's just the nature of you get more yelled at for you know, errors and mistakes and stuff. And I'm like, look, guys, disasters are by their very nature imprecise responses. I'd rather have too much too fast than to be there too late with too little, is what I used to tell my team. Right. But it's a hard concept on a day-to-day basis when you're fighting budgets, you're fighting just the day-to-day things you're dealing with as a bureaucracy, and then be able to flip that switch and go into a disaster response mode where you're taking risk, uh, you're going to be going in without a lot of information. You know, the, the joke in Washington is there's no problem that can't be solved by another meeting. <laughs> another meeting. <laughs> I, but, and I've spent some time in D.C., so I completely resonate but with that. But in a disaster, you don't have that. You don't have time. And so I don't think, you know, I think Congress could sometimes be clear about the intent. But the statutes themselves are not the limiting factor. It is almost the mindset. And so people like Brock and people like me when we come in there, it's a challenge for us to get traction within that bureaucracy uh, to get them to change that mindset, to be more prone to making decisions, uh, less risk averse, when on a day-to-day basis, that's the exact opposite reward system they're in. Right. I want to pivot a little bit uh, before we bring in um, Laura uh, to talk a little bit about uh, one of the things that I think you're most effective at in your past role and frankly still are and that's how you communicate and, and with your stakeholders with your customers uh, I, I I think you're still um, well known for one of the most memorable statements on the television version of Weather Geeks we were talking I don't know if you remember this it was after the big snowstorm in New York and the mist and we were talking about uncertainty and the uncertainties and how they need to be conveyed and you were like well there already there's already uncertainty it's a forecast I thought that was so effective um, how do you view, and, and you're also known for the Waffle House 
Clubhouse Index in terms of communicating. Talk to us and the listeners here about your philosophy on messaging, whether it be for disasters, emergency emergency management, or weather. Uh, are you conscious of your how you communicate, or you just kind of let it flow? <laughs> I, I let it flow, but also try to remember um, government has this tendency to be parental and talk at people. Mm-hmm. And I like to have conversations, and I like to relate things to people. And sometimes you can take information that may not be exactly 100 uh, percent. And this is one of the big challenges I see both from meteorologists but also other types of hazards, talking about disease and stuff. There's a big difference between being precise and being informative. And you've seen it. Uh, you've actually written about this, about the tendency to be so precise in a forecast, we don't really convey yes. either uncertainty, risk, or how bad something can be. That is correct. Uh, and it's almost like we're hiding behind our terminology. Yeah, we, we, we jargon ourselves. Today. Yeah. I mean, even recently, we, there's been a lot of debate, and I'm interested in your thoughts on it. Uh, we had subtropical storm Alberto, yeah. and that's technically what it is. It that, had characteristics, mid-latitude characteristics, and tropical characteristics. Yet I had people, my, my own wife was like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean it's not as bad as a tropical storm? And this goes all the way back to Sandy. Yeah. What's a post-tropical cyclone? Oh, Yes. And, you know, we, we saw that there were some very likely some additional impacts because people said, hey, I went through Irene and they had hurricane warnings up. There's no hurricane warnings for this one. There's just coastal flood warnings. Well, it won't be that bad because we get coastal flood warnings on Northeasters all the time. That means the road floods. Right. And it wasn't conveying how, even though everybody was saying, you know, we're talking about storm surge, some of the worst you ever historically will experience, but we weren't calling it a hurricane because technically... As a post-tropical cycle. Technically, technically, right, exactly. So, but I think some good did come out of that. I mean, when Rick Nabb was down at the Hurricane Center, they began that whole process from, look, once we start issuing hurricane advisories, even when it becomes a post-tropical, we're not going to not use our, our tools. So yes. we're going to put up the hurricane warnings if it's appropriate, just like for Alberta. They didn't put up subtropical storm warnings for the coast. They had tropical, tropical storm, storm warnings, storm. even though it was not. a. So I think sometimes we are using precision in our – and being scientifically correct, and I think we we lose people. Yeah. Um, and then we have to. I think if you're having to explain something to people about a term you're using, then perhaps the term isn't a good term. Bingo, exactly. I mean, I still, you know, when we talk about even just simple things like watch and warning. You know, in many places, I think people get it, but you know, I've had people tell me, "Well, I thought a tornado watch, but I'm watching the tornado." Yeah. And warning means that it might happen. So I, I think we have to be more cognizant of this. Talk to us about this Waffle House index that you are often uh, talking about. I, mean, I think it's actually, and we're we're in the state. Where Waffle House is headquartered, too. So, yeah, the whole thing about the Waffle House actually started out uh, in Hurricane Charlie. Um, we got hit hard in uh, several counties. It, it, it went through Orlando, did tremendous damage to the airport there, well inland, exited out uh, near Daytona Beach. And initially, I was getting all these reports of how many power, power outages, how many water outages. And they were just numbers. And I'm like, I need context. How many, what percentage of the population? So I said, I'm going to use a traffic light. Red's bad, yellow, and green, they're on their own. And we had probably about a dozen counties that were in various states of that. And I came up with all these different things like schools closed, power outage, stuff like that. But the other thing that was happening was I was actually down in Charlotte County, but there was nowhere to stay. So we were driving all the way down to Fort Myers to spend the night, and we drive back. Well, we're getting up at like 4.30 sure. in the morning. You got to eat breakfast because you're going to be on the road all day. <laughs> the only thing that was open was Waffle House. Absolutely. First one we pulled into, they were open. We get in there to hand us a mimeograph menu. They said, we lost power 
the freezer's gone, so all we got is fresh. So if it's not on the menu, we don't have it. Right. So we ordered, we had breakfast. Next morning, there's a Waffle House opened up the road about two intersections from where this one's once closer to Charlotte County. So we went there for breakfast. Same deal. Like, and it's the first thing open. Right. Um, and so my guys that I was with, uh, Ben Nelson, who's actually a meteorologist now at Jackson Weather Service Office, and uh, Tad Warfel, who's the National Guard's a colonel now, uh, they came up with the index. They said, because I was doing everything red, yellow, and green, they came up with the index. Red, they're closed. And Waffle House is never closed. They never close, exactly. So that's a that's a that's a it's pretty significant. If they got a mimograph menu, limited items, they're yellow. We've got a lot of power outages and other things. And if they got a full menu and they're open, they're green. Well, after about the second hurricane hit, Francis hit, we started realizing there was a very close correlation between Waffle House openings and areas of impact. And since we weren't waiting for damage assessments, we were driving to where the storms were making landfall. It was oftentimes, where do you stop to go to work? So by the time we get to Ivan, we literally have National Guard and our, you know, all of the uh, search and rescue teams from the fire departments all heading out on I-10. <laughs> and the question is, where do you stop? Well, if the Waffle House at the interchange was up and running and had a full menu, keep going. Right. If you got there and they had a limited menu, all right, that's where mass care probably needs to go to work. But if you get there and the Waffle House is closed because of storm damage, go to work. Yeah. Um, and then when Katrina rolled around, we sent mutual aid over to uh, Mississippi. And literally that's what happened is they were coming across the interstate. They could tell the level of impact just by the Waffle House openings. By the time they got down to the coast, they were coming across slabs that used to be Waffle Houses. Um, so it, it, it became sort of like a benchmark of uh, communicating how bad areas have impacted. And it turned out Waffle House, uh, who I never talked about this to, actually approached me when I got the FEMA. I thought I was actually in trouble. And they said, no, this is... <laughs> they this, love it. They love it. Free advertising. But I found out something about Waffle House. Um, they don't close. They don't advertise. And you know what their mission is after a storm? Get open. Wow. And I, I thought about that from a business perspective. Something clear. No, you know, seven-page mission statement. No rules. They knew... They had a checklist. But their goal was to get their stores open. And I said, why? And they said, because two reasons. Our associates... Uh, this is their job, and it's the only job they got. And if they're not working, they're not getting paid. And we got customers that depend upon us that this is where they get their breakfast, and we need to be there for our community. And, I mean, the president of the company would literally load up with other executives here in, here in Atlanta and drive to stores and start getting them open. They'd open up. They'd get the cooks going. They, and it was just to me just very interesting how we were using it kind of as a, a loose reference, but the reason they were getting open so fast and rarely closed is because – they had an operational philosophy said, get open, serve the community. If we don't have power and we got gas, we get the grill going. Uh, we got boiled water, we'll pour water in. I was in Joplin after the tornadoes. And I got asked, what's the Waffle House Index? I said, it's yellow. Why? Because they're in their boiled water order. They're still making coffee. They're still making coffee. But they're pouring bottled water into the coffee maker. Uh, they're still cooking food. Everything's now on plastic, disposable uh, wear and stuff. But it was just interesting to me how – they were focused on getting open to serve community and, and get back in business. But it was also this very good indicator of sort of like system-wide how a community was doing. Right. Because if a Waffle House could get open, uh, then you knew you were already starting that recovery. And it's, and it's one of those things where it really resonates with the public, too. People understand and know Waffle Houses. 
and welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Craig Fugate, former FEMA administrator, and he is now the chief emergency management officer at One Concern. I'm also now joined by Laura Lightbody, project director at Pew's Flood Prepared Communities. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit with you, and then we'll bring everybody back in for a uh, roundtable here or so. What, what, what are, how did you sort of meet Craig Fugate, and what do you guys have going on together? Well, Pew entered into this space in 2015 where we took a look at the, the policies that we have in place when it comes to our nation dealing with flood-related disasters and said, we need to fix a big problem that we have, which are many of the policies that are in place are old, they're antiquated, they've been on the books for a long time. Today's understanding of risk is very different than it used to be, and disasters are just simply costing more and more than they used to. So we, we and, look, tell, and tell us, you, we were talking offline, and tell us about your simple statement of why that is in terms of floods. Sure. You know, we the numbers do tell us that flood events are becoming more common. Yeah. Whether or not they're becoming more common, we simply just have more people and more stuff in harm's way. Sure. There was, you know, CoreLogic just came out with a report that showed how many billions of dollars of assets are at risk from hurricanes this just this year. So we we simply are seeing more houses, more concrete, more people. People want to live along the water. It makes sense. It's beautiful. But that means we're putting more people and things in harm's way. So we looked around. We saw that uh, the former administrator was coming out of the administration and said, who better to serve as a partner and an advisor to our work than someone who has rolled up his sleeves for more than eight years. You know, before he was with the federal government, he was in Florida doing the same thing. And so um, he uh, thankfully joined up with us and has served as, you know, a senior advisor to our work to really guide what we're doing. And we can go to him and say what what works and what shouldn't, you know, what doesn't work and how can we improve really from a federal perspective the way that our nation prepares for and responds to these disasters. So, so, what, so you, you, again, you're with the Pew's Flood Prepared Communities, and so you, you've now kind of you know, tagged up with Craig Fugate, now a strong partner there. What's your goal? The goal is to fix policies that are in place that are leading to more disasters and to better prepare communities. So, how, so I want to deal with that first one first, and then we'll come back to the second one. How do you fix policy? So are, are, are you lobbying policymakers? Are you conducting studies to provide evidence that this needs fixing? So we're looking at policies that have been in place that have worked, that have led to better prepared communities, more mitigation measures. So what policy can drive communities to prepare, right? So make investments before disasters strike rather than after disasters strike. Our country's very good at spending money and delving out dollars after disasters strike. We're not quite as good at preparing in advance of disaster. Can I echo that one point before you continue on? Because as a meteorologist, um, I I don't want to speak for my good friend Louis Uccellini, who's the director of the National Weather Service, but I so resonate with what you just said because, for example, we know for what we need in terms of our modeling capacity for improved weather forecasting, for example, but we only got it after Sandy and the Sandy Improvement Act. And so we, in the meteorological community also, there tends to be a reactive response as well. And sometimes, you know, you never do want to waste a good disaster, right? Some good things come out of these big disasters that happen. We saw after last year's hurricane season, the federal government spent $130 billion in 
uh, recovery money to go towards those communities. But we also uh, dished out the largest amount of mitigation money that we've ever seen, about $12 billion. When you say mitigation, what do you mean for our our listeners? What is mitigation money? It it is kind of a wonky term. Um, Activities that communities can undertake that are going to prepare them for natural hazards. So when you're talking about flooding, it could be things that you can do to your house, elevation, raising utilities, um, even things like buyouts and moving communities. From a community level, you're talking about larger infrastructure projects, redirecting roads. And then you have this sort of vision, right? Thinking about how to avoid that all in the first place. Where should we be building? We're developing, we're growing. We see that a lot in communities. Think about new development. Does it make sense to build in a flood risk area? Maybe not, right? And communities are constantly challenged with balancing that future risk or that potential risk and today's sort of economic return. Right. I want to kind of bring Craig back in as well, and we'll all have a conversation together. This notion of rebuilding or sort of placing infrastructure in places where we know it's going to flood again, what, what are your thoughts on that, Craig? Well, too often what we do is we look at the last hundred years and say, okay, we got to build back to that. But if every one of these events seems to be setting records, uh, looking backwards, not working. And we know that, and, and the good example here is in Atlanta. There's this tendency to think it's a zero-sum game. We're going to take away property values. We're going to reduce uh, taxable land if we take it away because of flood risk. Yet we saw in Atlanta where they took this area that was flood-prone, uh, was run down. It was actually brownfields. Mm-hmm. And they built an environmental beauty of a park uh, that serves multiple functions. It's a retainment area for floodwaters to minimize flood risk. It keeps water from overloading the sewer system. But it also provides green space and recreational area. And the property values around that have actually dramatically increased. Mm-hmm. So we know it's not a zero-sum game. You can actually build and do mitigation in a way that both enhances the community's value while minimizing the flood risk. But that means you got to take a step back. You just can't do these as one-offs or only be reactive. Uh, this is something that the city took years to do. Um, 2009 probably accelerated the process, but it was already in the works because they had to deal with how do they deal with stormwater runoff. Uh, but it's this idea that if we're thinking about our communities and not just limiting ourselves to the quote-unquote 100-year flood zone, but really looking at our flood risk, and look at decisions about where we build, how we build, how we use natural features and environment to minimize flood risk, but then turn that into value enhancements to our community. I mean, what urban area doesn't need more green spaces, parks, Absolutely. and trails? Just just to reduce the urban heat island, if anything else, and many other things. And you know, things like that add value to the community, but they also reduce the flood risk. And as we see more extreme flood risk, uh, again, these kind of plans in advance can minimize it. If we're only doing them after the flood, we really aren't changing much of the outcome. It will help in the future, but we we can't wait for disasters yeah. uh, because they're just too costly and they're too deadly. Now, now Laura, it sort of seems to me this is a new space in terms of what, what Pew's trying to do here. How, how receptive has what your effort is undertaking, how, how receptive has that been in the policy space or in the policy circles that you deal in? Well, we're in Washington, so we're dealing with uh, both sides of the aisle and, and what we've learned. Oh, just something easy to yeah. do, I'm sure. Just a simple <laughs> task. But, you know, in this space, what, what we know and what you are faced with very quickly is that 
Flooding knows no boundaries. It floods in all 50 yeah, states. It, it doesn't vote red or, or blue, does it? It simply doesn't care if you're sure. a Republican or a Democrat or if you're a coastal state or you're an inland state. Sure. So you we do have receptivity in Washington when it comes to um, resources for communities to be better prepared because this resonates with Iowa, Florida, Colorado and Maine. Yeah. So there's skin in the game for everyone um, and every state. Um, and that really helps us because you need you need champions um, both inland and coastal because there is I think there is a little bit of a per- perception that flooding really o- only impacts coastal states, you know, right. the southeast, right? Florida to South Carolina. Um, but when you take a sort of closer look at it, you realize that the Mississippi River, the Great Lakes here in Atlanta, um, sure. all these communities, and we're seeing it more and more. We're seeing places like the Ellicott City flooding over the weekend um, that people just don't think of when it when it um, when they think of flooding. Sure, no, that's right. It's an it's an unsung hazard, if you will. Um, where can people find out more about what? you're up to i mean is, is, is there a website is there information are there ways that other people can engage or be involved we have uh we post most of our research and a lot of our policy papers on pewtrust.org slash flood ready um, and you can visit that website and find uh all sorts of information now, now i want to this is a question for or a statement or question for either of you because you just your, your answer just triggered a thought in my mind pew trust now when I hear those two words, when I think of Pew, I think of a very credible source, well-known institution within our societal fabric. We're in an era where, you know, there's talk of fake news, undermining of scientific reporting, surveys, they're biased, this. Do, what is your perspective, either of you, I'll start with you, Laura, what is your perspective on this type of era that we're in and how does it make your job more difficult in trying to gather information in the science or policy space? We lead with the facts and the data. The, the facts and the data tell us what um, is true and that helps drive decisions around policy. Our research is grounded in data. Um, and that's not going to change. And sure. we have done that for 30 years, and we're going to continue to do that. I think now more than ever, it's important that we as an institution um, and other organizations continue to put that forward uh, because the facts do matter. They, they certainly do matter. Craig, any thoughts on this? And certainly as someone that has dealt with anyone from Congress, both sides of the aisle, to the administration, um, what is your thought on this sort of era that we're in? Well, you know, I've I've raised this concern before the attack on science. I mean, we used to be the nation of reason. Uh, Now we've become the nation of sound bites. And I think that's really what was attractive to me about Pew is because they do have that track record and they back up the research. You know, I work with a lot of groups that they have uh, their agendas on flood. Um, Pew did not come in with an agenda. Pew came in and said, we think there's a problem. Let's look at the numbers. The numbers are telling us something that doesn't make sense. Now, can we start looking at what kind of policy would help address this concern that we are growing our flood risk, it's getting worse, it's not good sound public policy, and it's not helping the people we're supposed to be serving because anytime we have a flood, you know, there are families at the other end of that. There are lives lost. This is not just about, you know, public policy. This is about families and businesses, small towns and big urban areas. Um, but I think that was really what attracted me to Pew was Pew doesn't start out with, we have an opinion. Pew starts out with, we have a question. 
and we get the facts, we get the data. And then from that, that starts now informing a policy decision. Uh, too often, I find that we, we take shortcuts. We come up with our policy, and then we try to make the facts fit what we want to do. fit it, yes. And Pew doesn't have that record. And, and again, it's actually kind of interesting going up on the Hill. Just to say this is Pew, people stop and listen. I, I'm sure. Uh, so I think because Pew chose to insert themselves, they didn't have to. Nobody asked them to do this, but they saw this as a public policy issue that needed to be addressed. Because they've inserted themselves into this conversation— they're probably one of the few neutral parties that everybody can look to says they didn't come in with an agenda. Absolutely. Yeah. But they are coming up with sound policy recommendations based upon the numbers, the data, the surveys of what people are thinking. Uh, and it didn't start out with, we have an agenda we want to push. We're going to cherry pick facts to get there. Um, and so I think I, it, being in D.C., that one is extremely refreshing. But two, it adds a certain amount of gravitas Absolutely. to Pew when they do make recommendations. That is correct. Um, any any thoughts that you may enter any other space within the weather climate community beyond floods? Well, I think we picked a pretty tricky one for now. <laughs> yeah, you uh, started with the. We're gonna see. Didn't start with the low level hanging. Yeah, group. because this is you know this is an issue that touches every state. Um, every committee in, in Congress, every federal, there are 18 federal agencies that deal with disaster response. Um, so it's a big issue and there's not one moonshot solution. So sure. we're trying to pick off um, some of the incremental steps that will ultimately make us more prepared, reduce costs and save lives. Uh, I'm going to finish out the segment in the podcast with back with you, Craig. Thank you for joining us, Laura. Thank you. Uh, Producers wanted to know a couple of things. One, are you still a weather geek? I think I know the answer to that. And two, what was it like for you to sit on the sidelines during the 2017 hurricane season? I learned all that advice I used to give, telling people to have their disaster supplies and plan ahead uh, and keep a battery power radio. Wasn't so much uh, just talking because I'm in Gainesville, Hurricane Irma hits. I lost power. I lost cable. I lost Wi-Fi. I lost cellular data. Yep. My only source of information for the first day after Irma hit was a battery-powered radio. Wow. And I remember the next day, cell service came back up, and I'm talking to Governor Bush. And for the first time, Governor Bush and I are on the other side of the response. <laughs> He's down in the gables. Uh, he doesn't have power. I'm up in Gainesville. We're, I don't have power. And that just gives you some idea of the impact Irma had on the state of Florida. Sure. It wasn't as devastating as Harvey or Maria. But for a state as long as Florida, uh, I thought it was pretty significant. The ex-governor and uh, me having gone through the 04 hurricane season, leading the responses down there, were on the other end of it. Yeah. So that preparedness message, have that battery power radio, that's for real. Right. So he he, he, he lived it himself. And I, I would say for Irma, we here in the Atlanta area, my, we were out of power and my kids were out of school three days. So it was a wide ranging event. Uh, Going to give you the last word, Craig, uh, 30 seconds or so. What would you have the nation that's listening know about sort of your perspective on hazards and disasters in this closing moment? No matter what anybody will tell you, the fastest response is neighbor helping neighbor. Uh yeah. I think that's the one thing we, we have to really tell people is when disasters strike, check on your neighbors. We'll save more lives doing that than anything else. And that's where we're going to have to leave it. Uh, Craig's actually very active on social media, so I encourage you to follow him and keep up with what he's up to, particularly on Twitter. Thank you both for joining us. This has been the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard.